Hello and welcome to the Play on Words Power Half Hour. I'm your host, Ryan Alpers, and this is episode six with Lyra Halprin. Originally, this was recorded second, but due to promotion and scheduling concerns, we decided to move this episode to the sixth slot of the season. That's why you will hear us say the second episode, because we recorded it second. So let's have a listen to episode six with our guest, Lyra Halpern, on the Play on Words Power Half Hour. Hello and welcome to the Play on Words podcast, the Power Half Hour. This is episode two, and I'm here today with Lyra Halpern. Lyra, hello. Hi. Hi, Ryan. How, uh, well, how you doing, first of all? <laughs> I'm doing great. Great. That's awesome. I am um, excited to talk to you today about your um, short story, Drive, She Said. Let's listen to it. This is Drive, She Said by Lyra Halpern. Dad, everyone is passing us, I said, watching a Plymouth Fury whiz past. It was July 1966, and we were on the San Bernardino Freeway heading east from Los Angeles to visit cousins in Colorado. The manufacturer said, we've got to keep it below 45 for the first thousand miles, Dad said, holding his hands on the wheel in the recommended 10 and two o'clock positions. Dad's attentions to rules didn't keep the four of us from our excitement. It was our first trip that didn't involve Highway 99, California's north-south artery and our personal hallway between my pianist mother's headquarters in Santa Monica and our family's farm 500 miles north in Yuba City. The trip was a deviation from our routine of living all summer in a tiny apartment near the farm and returning to Santa Monica what seemed to me like 20 minutes before school started in September. My 12-year-old sister and I were thrilled. I was 15 and filled with unidentifiable urgings and restlessness and bought 17 and surfer magazines to display on the car's rear window deck. Bedeer, mom said, short for, but dear, the term of endearment she saved for dad. We're going too slowly. She wiggled her bare feet on the dash of the blue Buick station wagon. It was equipped with water bumpers, like the fat padding mounted on freeway off-ramp walls. My father loved the bumpers. I hated them. They were yet another unusual, and in this case, ridiculously bulky thing that made us stick out. We were liberal Jews at a time when there were very few in conservative Santa Monica, and absolutely none in redneck Yuba City. Dad was a farmer who lived half the time in each location. The school counselor didn't believe my parents were still married. Somewhere on the trip, I asked Dad what his dream car would be, thinking of my high school teacher's silver Jaguar or a viola's friend's baby blue MG. Do you mean which one would have the best gas mileage? Dad asked. No, just which one would you like the best, I said. Dad fidgeted uncomfortably, hands on the steering wheel, looking at me in the rearview mirror. Would it be for the farm, he asked. Dad, anyone you'd really like to have, I said, staring at his worried hazel eyes in the mirror. Well, I'd, I'd have to know how I'd use it, he said, finally. This was the man who often swam a mile in the Pacific Ocean and drilled 48,000 holes eight feet deep to reclaim our flood-damaged farm soil. He marched against President Johnson, wrote letters to every U.S. Senator exhorting them to avoid nuclear weapons in Vietnam, and years later, 
attended university nude life drawing classes with me. Yet he simply couldn't allow himself to have an imaginary favorite car. From the back seat, I wondered if it was kosher to want practicality in a beautiful package or to ignore it entirely in the face of skin-prickling design. My parents drove cars until they disintegrated and rationed long-distance calls, but they lived near outstanding schools and put budget aside to purchase a Henry Miller dining table. I knew I wanted a beautiful car and someone who understood desire out of context, a car without a purpose, speed without a destination. Uh, Okay, and so that was Drive She Said by Lyra Halpern, and we have Lyra Halpern here today in the garage. My first question is, tell us more about the process you go through to collect these memories and really get them down on paper the way that you do. Um, mostly, it's just butt in chair. It's um, making myself do it. I've for years I've wanted to tell stories about my growing up um, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in California that was changing and the fact that we lived in both a rural community in Northern California, a poor rural community, and also I went to school because my father didn't want us to go to school in that poor rural community in Santa Monica, which was uh, fairly affluent mostly white community in Southern California. And to do that, to keep, to get, grab my stories, I've um, just keep working on them. Um, in the last couple of years, I've done it on a more uh, concerted, I've made a more concerted effort to do that, and I write every day. Drive, she said, is one of the first stories to come out of from this process why the first um because my dad died when i was 25 and i've been missing him for more than 40 years and we had a great relationship um and of course he drove me crazy the way that all fathers drive teenage girls crazy or in, in teenage boys I would imagine um, but I wanted to write about him in, um, and me growing up and how I became what I did which was uh, I became a feminist um, I grew up to be a feminist and it, part of that was because of my father's very strong political activism and deeply held feelings but also, he was a complicated person just like everybody else. He was a complete dork about driving under the speed limit. And um, so I, I started with him. So you describe a, a coming-of-age story, really, a, a buildings Roman, you know, this, this ingenue that is experiencing the world for the first time. How important is it to tell that story? Well, right now, I think because this last year I became a grandmother for the first time and it turns out that my first grandchild is a girl and I've been thinking a lot about what it means to grow up as a 
little girl and then a big girl in California and the United States right now, especially with pretty severe changes in the political atmosphere. And I, part of, I guess, part of the vibe now, in addition to wanting to talk about my family, is I want to show young women that where they came from, that there was a lot of people that came before them. And it's not just young women, but young men, they, people forget that there's really a lot of hard work that went into being where we are now, and we don't want to lose it. The history of California is, is intertwined in the, in the writings that you're, that you're producing. And the history of California is a, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But tell me more about growing up in California. And how different maybe it is for your granddaughter today. When I was growing up, it was a lot easier to walk to school. Nobody worried about kids getting hurt on the way to school. Um, I think even in Yuba City, which wasn't um, as, which was a poor community, um, it was still a very safe community. And um, I think that's different. Um, there were a lot fewer cars. One of the other things that um, in I've noticed in some of the things I've been writing is I've written a lot about cars just because they, you know, my father was drove slowly and I learned how to drive uh, Willie's 1952 Korean War surplus uh, Willie's Jeep. But I married a guy who is always the one who's passing people like my father on the car, uh, on the freeway. And he had a Corvette for nine years that he drove to commute in. But because we lived so far apart um, up and down the state, having a good car was an important thing. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about cars because we were in them a lot. People didn't fly as much as they do now. Um, and, uh, you know, they also, the other thing is we wrote a lot of letters, which was, an, uh, I have a lot of stuff that I felt written down because we don't save text messages now. No, no. And and not I even delete, very many emails. Yeah. Emails delete. How many do we delete a day now? It's just yeah. so many. You 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 write about this sense of community um existing, you know, and and having this this important, you know, sense of place um in, you know, California, specifically in, you know, the north and the south. And for a lot of Californians, myself included, there there seems to be, you know, this sort of weird, or I don't even want to describe it as weird, but there is just the sense of, even within California, there being such a, you know, divergent in different communities in, the, you know, Northern California versus Southern California or Central California, you know. Tell us, for people that aren't familiar with California, kind of where Yuba City exists in that geography. Well, Yuba City, um, uh, and it was in the outskirts of Yuba City is where we farmed, which is about 50 miles north of Sacramento, northeast of Sacramento, and the Twin City, it has a Twin City, Marysville, and um, it was, when I was growing up, um, it was, there were, there was Beale Air Force Base, so there were a lot of Army people, and also, um, Braceros, families that had come up during a, a legal period of Mexican farm workers coming up to work the harvests. The and yeah, the Bracero program existed yeah. up 
through the 50s, I think, was it? Or the I think it was it maybe like 61. Yeah. Um, something like that. But mm-hmm. it was it was legal. And so there was a very high Hispanic community, a uh, high number of Hispanics and also East Indians because the Punjab, had a v- which, which is a large farming area in India, had a very similar climate to Yuba City area. And um, so that's actually where there's a really large Sikh temple. It's the largest, one of the largest ones in the, uni- it's one of the largest ones outside of India is there. And um, the only employee that we had on our farm was East Indian, um, who came over here originally on a student visa and stayed and became a farmer himself. And um, so... You're missing one major part of Yuba City. The river. Oh, the river, right. Okay, yeah. The, the Marysville and Yuba City are separated by a river. They're twin... Which river is that? The Feather River. Yes. And um, Recently in the news. Recently in the news. And um, it played a huge role in our family's life. Um, Why? In ni- and Christmas Eve 1955, or it was actually Christmas Day, the, li- the, rev- the levee broke on our farm. And 40 people were killed. We lost everything. It uprooted two orchards, and we had 10 buildings, a farmhouse and outbuildings. And we found one plate and one ladder. And uh, you were how old? I was four. Came up um, that Christmas vacation period with my dad on the train. Uh, my grandparents were up there, and um, my mother was rehearsing for a concert in Los Angeles. Um, so she was in Santa Monica with my little sister, April and your mother is a piano was a pianist with the uh, Cleveland Orchestra when she was 21 years old and came to California where the rest of her family had migrated from the East Coast and was um, she did a lot of chamber music and uh, she did some solo work too in the Los Angeles area and then for many years she did was with the Pacifica Piano Quartet and they did. Uh, sort of like young audiences for young people in the schools. And you were with her and came to Yuba City Yeah, from Southern California. From Southern California, but actually on that occasion, she stayed in L.A. and it was just my father and me on the train. And when, when they spent four hours moving all the furniture to the second floor, I remember walking with them on the levee the night before the flood and uh, the levee was very high, and but nobody thought the levee was going to break, and especially not on our farm. But we moved all the furniture to the second floor of the farmhouse, and I remember being very angry with my father because he didn't bring a little bracelet that I had. And we spent a night sleeping on the floor of a church in Sutter, which was uh, about seven miles away, and came back. And we couldn't even get close to the farm, but nothing was left. And you wrote about this. Yes. In, and as, it's just, I'm so curious. As a four-year-old, you know, what do you what do you remember? Well, I remember. Is it specific, I very specific s- things, general things? Mo- you know, I, I'm thinking back to, you know, some of my earliest memories, and they are of very specific things and places and time. You know, how, I'm curious. Yeah, what do you, what have you? I remember very specific remember? things about that trip. Um, 
I remember the rain in the, they had a dome liner. It was the dome liner on the train. And I remember there was a lot of rain. We couldn't really see out of it. Um, I had taken the train with my dad before. And so I knew you could see more. But when we got, and I remember when my grandparents picked us up, um, that they were all very happy to see us. And I remember going back to the farm. And I remember sleeping on the floor of the church. We had a dark purple uh, Studebaker. And I remember driving in that. Had really uncomfortable seats, kind of hairy. And I remember what they were made of. But I do uh, mostly remember the sense of the fact that it changed our lives forever because the farm was really destroyed, not even just with the flood. It was that the Army Corps of Engineers spent two years rebuilding the levee and the compaction um, ruined our soil. So that was a big deal in our family. How are your memories influencing your memoir writing process? Mm, quite a bit. I, Like I said, when I think one of the reasons I started with my father in writing the stories is because he, uh, I was 25 when he died and I um, was a reporter and I wrote a long m sort of uh, tribute to him a few months after he died that ran in the newspaper I was working for, the California Farm Observer. And I talked with my sister and my mom about it and um, we got a lot of family history into that piece, which was pretty long. No other newspaper would have printed it. It was just because I worked there. <laughs> but um, uh, so I do have a lot of memories of that I had already written down. The over the years, I've written a lot of things. So now when I'm writing memoir stories, I can draw on that. Yeah. How important is it as a writer to uh, maintain the discipline that you're describing? You know, the daily writing, keeping records, making sure that you're, you know, these, these things, you know, still are within arm's reach. The, well, when... I think it's really important to write when there's right after an experience, if you have an intense experience, like I know that you've had a baby recently, and to r and I know that you have done some writing about it and or dictating about it that you guys have had access to. I think that's really important. There's a real freshness to stuff that even if it's not edited, um, it's just fresh, and it's hard to recapture that. So I force myself a lot of times when we have an experience that I think is pretty awesome, I want to write about it right away. I didn't, I haven't written every single day of my life. I, in the last two years, I've been trying really hard to have a different outcome, which was I want to have a completed manuscript. And mm -hmm. to do that, I've had to be really consistent with um, my writing. But um, I've, I was looking back on it, I think journals if people keep journals that captures some of that freshness even if it's just a couple lines mm -hmm. some of uh the most entertaining i mean writing that my wife <laughs> and i have done was for, you know during our road trips keeping the journal the daily log you know where my wife would write down you know things and you know that became something that now you read it from start to end, and it tells you, you know, a whole story. 
right? But each day, you know, you are putting it together. You don't you don't see the entire narrative until then it's it's done. How is the manuscript writing process a daily journey for you? It's really hard, and I think I have a lot more appreciation than I ever had. I mean, I'm 65, and I had a lot. I, you would think that I would have appreciated this by now, but I really do putting it together how other people write smoothly, write uh, completed manuscripts. I don't think there's anything that's easy in the world. I mean, it might seem like it afterwards, and I have to remind myself, it's not just writing that's tricky. Um, I love what Gloria Steinem said. She loves to have written. Yes. Yeah. What's your biggest fear as a writer? That I'm not going to finish this. <laughs> <laughs> getting, it, getting, the, getting it all out there. Yeah. What is your greatest hope that I finish writer. it, as that I finish, finish it. it, and I, I'm determined that I'm going to, um, and and within a structure, you know, that I've written short things over the years, but I'm trying to finish a larger piece, which is taking a different skill set, and I have so much respect for people that have pulled this off. How has your background as a journalist and as a news writer um, influenced your process I'm a pretty good observer of details and I get that I guess from my journalism training um, the short takes I'm pretty good at that it I have had to learn a whole different way of writing though I I really wasn't that tuned into story arc mm-hmm. I mean I think good writing good creative nonfiction, journalism, whatever, has inherently a story arc. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really understand it as well as I have the last few years. I've taken a lot of classes Mm -hmm. and worked with, uh, done a lot of writing workshops, and I have observed other people who pull it off, and now when I read things, I'm much more aware of what I, the structure. Mm -hmm. Talk more about this, this story arc for those that are listening to this podcast, just learning. You know, what, what is it, and why is it so important to storytelling? Well, you want to have a beginning and an end for your reader, a real satisfying feeling, and then there's a climax someplace within it. Um, uh, Brenda Miller, uh, who's a fine writer, I took a workshop with her. I mean, she talks about the container that your story is in, that you need, I mean, maybe that's another word for the story arc, too, is that you, within the, you you have to give your reader, a f- I think, a start and a finish and a middle, and and you can go off on tangents, but you need to come back to the whatever it is you want to say, and you need to wrap it up. Yeah, we're just finishing up The Great Gatsby in my junior American literature class, and I mean, that's a classic example of your, you know, just storytelling frame and pyramid and use of suspense and all of these very, you know, thing, definable things, formulaic things, things, though, that work, you know, things that have Absolutely. forever worked. And it's 
I think so important to be able to 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 either start or end or at for it's in the back of your mind not thinking about it still do it but having that there and and having that present throughout your longer piece the sustained piece and even the short story too I mean you know drive she said it has that you know it has that moment you know of the beginning right and then the end and it's all you know within the shorter frame but then you take that isolated piece combine it with all of these others over a two-year period and it's you're rolling your eyes right now which we can't see here or here on the uh podcast but it uh it it can be yeah it can be it can be a lot it can be a lot and having i guess the patience you know to 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 follow through and and finish is I, i i haven't done it you know i i've only written short short pieces myself and it i have almost a fear of that that's my fear you know as a writer is writing a novel you know? how you get from the beginning to the end one of the things mm-hmm. that one of the things i've learned i've been working with a really terrific woman ray garand in the last um 15 months and she's had me write a lot of new stuff really a lot and i couldn't figure out why because I thought I had a lot of things already and I wanted to know how to combine them and she was right though because through it I've figured out a theme things that you start identifying oh things keep coming up again what's the theme what what is the well it's about for a young girl to understand that there were a lot of things you the past is really important to us now and a lot of the young people don't see that yes well yeah it's a uh in the great gatsby i'm coming back to it it's so fresh in my mind you teach a class three times a day it sticks with you we i you know make america great again you can't repeat the past you know nick tells gatsby and then gatsby looks at him like he's a crazy person and says well can't repeat the past well of course you can you know and it's the same, you know, idea of um, sort of romanticizing, you know, the past, but um, in a in a negative way. And your take on it is also just as valid, also just as true. You know, we have to remember the past, you know, but it it plays such a large part in our human memory. And I feel too, you know, it it influences our behavior behavior now, in the moment, in the reality. Right? Gatsby becomes obsessed with the past, where it consumes him, you know, and it's a tragedy. You're writing down your past, you know, is not a tragedy. You know, why why is it so important? Well, one of the things that I, the other thing that I noticed was when you ask what is it that I've seen that I, you know, that, that I, it, well, the new writing, a lot of the, but a lot of the same things came up. One of them is I've stayed pretty optimistic. I would characterize myself as a positive person and so were my parents and we went through a lot of pretty bad things. I was born, I'm a Jew, and I was born six years after Auschwitz was liberated, and some of our family members died in during the Holocaust, and others ended up refugees elsewhere. And during the McCarthy era, a lot of my mom's and my dad's friends who were writers and musicians were blacklisted. And... Um, I have an uncle who was unable to practice law because he refused to take the loyalty oath, and his case went to the Supreme Court twice, and he eventually prevailed, but he was uh, 40 years older by the time that happened. 
and I guess my thing, how can how did we stay so optimistic and cheerful in spite of all this? And that's what I want to tell my granddaughter and other young people is who are, f- we see this stuff that's coming, that is happening now that is really not great for a lot of us, but it's not hopeless. And times of oppression actually can be very stimulating to arts and the creative world. Mm-hmm. And that's how we convey that our optimism and, and a way out. Mm-hmm. We can take action. And part of, sometimes that's with uh, my, my mom used to play benefit concerts for peace activists. She played benefit concert for da- Daniel Ellsberg, who was the person who let the world know about the Pentagon Papers. And there's a lot of positive, creative stuff can come out of times of oppression. And I think we're in one of those times now. Hope. 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 Well, Lyra, thank you for being here today. And I just really appreciate your time. And I really um, am thankful for uh, the fact that your greatest fear and your greatest hope is your novel. Because it's the same with me, too. I um, thank you very much. Thank you.